The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host David Bell will speak with author Gene Slater to discuss his book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. Is freedom inextricable, belonging equally to all Americans? Or is it private property belonging to one individually without regard to the rights of others, especially those of other races? David Bell and Gene Slater will show how the history of redlining illuminates this question fundamental to America. Gene Slater has served as senior advisor on housing for federal, state, and local agencies for over 40 years. He co-founded and chairs CSG Advisors, which has been one of the nation's leading advisors on affordable housing for decades. He has advised on housing issues in 30 states. Redlining is the discriminatory practice of denying services, typically financial services, to residents of certain areas based on their race or ethnicity. After this practice was so rampant, it was easily identified and it was outlawed under fair lending laws. Currently, factors of race and ethnicity cannot be used to make lending or underwriting decisions. We bring you vital information underserved or ignored by mainstream media. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is David Bell. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We began this series uh, that we're talking about on structures and systems with Lori Watson, a professor of philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Watson led us in a discussion on the intersection of sex work and the criminal justice system through a philosopher's lens. Professor Watson helped us identify when systems and structures in our society, rather than just our individual choices, may be producing what we experience. Our next guest, Andrew Gustafson, curator of interpretation at the Johnson County Museum, helped us answer the question, why do we live where we live, work where we work, and associate with the people we do? He taught us about redlining in Johnson County, Kansas. We learned about physical maps that defined where millions of residential loans would be made and where they wouldn't be made. For today's show, we go a step further, and rather than focusing just on physical boundaries serving as the demarcation lines that separate us, we will learn about how ideas and concepts are created to separate us and how these strategies are used again and again up through today. Not surprisingly, the discussion begins with redlining. We welcome to our show the author of a wonderful book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. Gene Slater, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. So we can bring our listeners back up to speed. Would you mind briefly summarizing the flow of things from the early 1900s up through just before World War II? Sure. So in terms of the history of residential segregation, um, the important thing to bear in mind is that contrary to myths, we all grew up believing, black and white, 
that segregation was natural, it was normal, it was the way things always were. Segregation was actually created, was invented in the early 1900s by the organized real estate industry. And in fact, Kansas City played a, and Casey Nichols in Kansas City played a key role in this. It was invented in much the way the airplane was invented. It was to solve a particular problem, and it got pioneered, and it got developed, and it then spread quickly across the country. So that's the important thing to bear in mind. Is this was an invention. It's one that took an enormous level of effort to racially divide the the burgeoning free markets in real estate, you know, in the United States, and to separate that out and to stop that free market to racially restrict it. So that was an invention. And the way it was invented wasn't like a whole system was designed, we're going to segregate all of America. Rather, in the early 1900s, there was the formation of real estate boards, which were the most established brokers in each city. And they were trying to restrict, in their own terms, they were trying to restrict what they called the Wild West of real estate, which involved lots of fraud, lots of competition. And we'll see, and they effectively created through multiple listing service controls. These organized boards were usually 5% of all the brokers in the city. They wound up controlling effectively 80% of real estate sales. Some of the key leaders of these boards, Jason Nichols in Kansas City, Duncan McDuffie in Berkeley in California, they were themselves developing some high-end subdivisions, country club estates in Kansas City, for example. And as part of that package, they were trying to solve a real estate problem, which is how do you, in a world without zoning, there was no zoning at the time, how do you control if you're building a big high-end subdivision with curving streets and trees and everything else, how do you make certain three years from now, the units, the lots you've sold haven't been built as apartment houses or brothels or undertaking parlors? And they created covenants that limited what somebody could do with the property they sold to. And first people said, well, this is kind of, un buyers said, this is kind of un-American. You know, I'm buying a piece of real estate, I'm being told what, what I can do with it. And But this was protecting the developer because he was selling off the last lots five years from now or seven years from now. To this set of covenants that have been used in a few high-end subdivisions in the country, Nichols and McDuffie, both are bred at the same time in 1905, added another covenant, which was a restriction, which says this property can never be sold, or for the next 30 years, can never be sold or occupied by a non-Caucasian chapter servant. These racial covenants quickly became very popular, and when they sold to their their customers, they said, it's not the restriction on you which matters, it's the restrictions on your neighbors which count. And these spread within a couple of years, within like the next 10 years, they spread to high-end subdivisions, um, they spread to middle-class subdivisions, and they spread to working-class subdivisions where the only rule was there weren't restrictions on street trees or what else you could build. It was simply no, no non-Caucasian could live here. And, and let me just say, by Caucasian, this was sort of an invented term, but it basically allowed the developers and the realtors to exclude not only blacks and Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans, 
Jews, Catholics, Poles, Lithuanian, Turks, and so forth. Over time, as we'll see in this story, by around World War II, more of these European groups who were considered non-Caucasian started being let in. And it was ultimately only blacks who were excluded. But that's how, that's the very beginnings of segregation in the United States. And to give you a flavor of how significant a change this was, what it involved, in 1904, a black broker in Los Angeles said, you know, the black the blacks of the city have prudently refused to segregate themselves and live in some of the best neighborhoods with the best services and infrastructure in the city. Twelve years later, in the same Los Angeles, a black woman said, the whites have surrounded us with invisible walls of steel and prevented us from going beyond those walls. Those walls were racial covenant. This then spread. So brokers who were now sort of using this and seeing this was a way of attracting customers and you know, speeding up sales, they said, we can use this in existing neighborhoods too. And so they had people go out and sign petitions that when three quarters of the homes in this area um, had these covenants, then you could enforce them against if somebody's next door, your next door neighbor eventually sold their home and, and the next person wanted to sell or rent it to a minority, you could sue them and go into court and sue them. And this was upheld by the California Supreme Court in 1919, and, and then by the U.S. Supreme Court allowed these to stand. These racial covenants spread so quickly that by the mid-1920s, they were on like 90, you know, 90 percent of new homes being built in many subdivisions and half the homes in the country. So that's how segregation began. It became as a, as a sales tool, um, you know, by, by the realtors. We've talked briefly with uh, Mr. Gustafson, you know, the FHA and, and loans that to trying to stimulate the economy took this idea on overdrive and spread it certainly throughout the other, uh, throughout the rest of the country. But I want to get now to, to World War II. You know, one of the problems World War II, uh, as, as you've indicated in your book, is that there was a dilemma there in that we had black uh, soldiers who were sent over to Europe to fight for America, for freedom of America, coming back and and being told they couldn't live uh, somewhere. And I, and I want to read really briefly in the case we're going to talk about. In 1945, a case was brought in Missouri uh, that was called Shelley v. Kramer that wound up at the Supreme Court, and we'll talk about that. But here's what it said about the covenants you're talking about. On February 16, 1911, 30 out of a total of 39 owners of property fronting an area in the city of St. Louis signed an agreement that was recorded. And it said the property is hereby restricted to the use and occupancy for a term of 50 years. So as a condition of that, no part of said property or portion shall be occupied by any person not of the Caucasian race. It is intended hereby to restrict the use of said property. And the question became then, uh, Gene, that we're not talking state action because we're talking individuals getting together to try to do this. And we're talking these brokers are doing this. But, but yet the Supreme Court had a dilemma on its hands. And, and if you could explain that dilemma and also around the same time explain the dilemma also that the United States was having with black soldiers returning, in particular, a black soldier uh, in South Carolina in 1946. So the country had fought this war that was promoted both you know, by Roosevelt, by his Republican opponent, Wendell Wilkie, as a war for freedom that required the freedom of all. 
against racist imperialist dictatorships, against Hitler and the Japanese. And in fighting that war had sent this message that everybody needed to participate, and this was freedom for all. At the end of the war, in uh, Isaac Woodard, who was a, um, a black GI, still in uniform, three hours after being discharged in South Carolina, gets on a on Greyhound bus, and the driver, I guess, you know, asks him something, and he talks back. The mayor, police chief, gets on from the local town and gouges out his eyes. He's blinded, and this is presented to. And there are other incidents like this that are happening, just like there was a, a wave of the beginning revival of Ku Klux Klan after World War One, and this was coming back. Well, here are these uppity, you know, soldiers who've come back and think they're entitled to, you know, be treated like whites. And the head of the NAACP told this story to, um, to President Truman, and the next day Truman called his Attorney General and said, "Maybe we should." Can we create a President's Committee on Civil Rights that'll look into these issues and figure out what we need to do? And this committee, I'm going to back to Shelley and Creamy here in a second. This committee, which was headed by the president of GE and the heads of large universities, National Committee, said that the main obstacle to the Bill of Rights and the main obstacle to American freedom was Jim Crow in the South and was racial covenants in the way realtors operated across the country, racial, residential segregation. Two highest immediate recommendations. One was to issue an executive order to desegregate the armed forces. And the other was that the United States government, the Department of Justice, should, for the first time in our history, intervene in a private case being brought by the NACP and other civil rights groups, Shelley versus Kramer, to, about you know, to stop the enforcement of racial covenants. That day, Truman ordered the attorney general to intervene in that case. That case went to the Supreme Court in 1947 and was decided in June of 48. There were nine Supreme Court justices. Three of them recused themselves. Presumably, they never said why, but presumably because their own houses had racial covenants on them. And the decision in the Supreme Court was sort of a novel legal theory was saying, we've never really questioned the issue of this is court enforcement of racial covenants. The covenants are private, but this is court enforcement. This is the 14th Amendment. Supreme Court unanimously, six to zero, voted against the system. It's like considered the case censured. The arguments behind it were the arguments the NACP then used in Brown versus Board of Education. This was really the key case. And the first reaction, there were headlines like in black newspapers, you know, Negroes can now live anywhere. And that was sort of the hope of those who had fought, who had fought for this. Um, didn't turn out that way. You know, one of the fascinating things about that case is Shelley versus Kramer, and you can look it up on the internet. It's a, it's a, it's a foundational case here. First of all, the court says, we've concluded that state action of having a court system enforce these covenants denies petitioners equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. However, the court also said, we conclude that the restrictive agreement standing alone cannot be regarded as a violation of any rights guaranteed to the petitioners by the 14th Amendment. And what was so, I don't know, disturbing a little bit about it, Gene, was that they basically said, if you want to be racist, you, you go ahead. That That's okay. But all we can tell you is that the court's 
are not going to be able to enforce that for you. And so then, and so then I understand what happens next. I think someone actually comes up with an idea of, well, why don't we just get rid of the 14th Amendment? So the, the Los Angeles Real Estate Board, which is the largest in the country, designed, proposed a U.S. constitutional amendment that would overturn the 14th Amendment and legally say that cities can create apartheid can create, and this is the same year as apartheid in South Africa, I should say, that they can create zones by zoning, in effect, where blacks can live and they can't live anywhere else. And they said this is necessary because otherwise they menaced the, uh, you know, the safety and welfare of American society, our family values. And the California uh, Real Estate Association picked this up and started spreading as an idea that was being promoted. And then that summer, the National Real Estate Board dropped this idea on the advice of their counsel, who basically said to them, you don't need a constitutional amendment, a U.S. constitutional amendment, to continue residential segregation, which has now been part and parcel of the real estate practices of developers and of brokers all over the country in how they sell homes. You can do this more effectively and quietly by racial steering, by limiting who you show homes to, who you'll enter into contracts to, through your multiple listing service, through kicking out of any real estate board and basically kicking out of, freezing out of the industry any broker who would dare sell to a minority. They had other end arounds. You know, homeowners association, first homeowners association in America were created at country club estates to enforce these racial covenants. That was their purpose. So the realtor said, we can use homeowners associations to take action and effectively control who can live there. So it was essentially a, a way of, of saying, all right, we can't do it through the courts. Let's figure out another way to do it. And then I know we had uh, fair housing legislation, the Rumford Fair Housing Act, that, that came up in California, I guess, to try to get to, the, to, to private action. What, what I found surprising to me, Gene, in your book is, is when the, the term forced housing was used. Just like the term forced busing, it's like, wait a minute, are you making me go live somewhere? Is that what you're talking about? Like the way it was presented, it's it's artfully, it, it's scary, but artfully, because I think all forced housing was really suggested, was really referring to fair housing, which really meant your dollar should be able to buy wherever your dollar should, should be able to buy. Exactly right. So in reaction to Shelley, as the real, just to give you the seesaw nature of how this worked, the... The real estate industry and developers continued they, they continue when they were selling homes to limit themselves who who were being able to buy homes. And segregation actually in the 1950s intensified by the end of by 1960 in this country. Um, 98% of new homes were off limits to blacks and 95% of neighborhoods. That's how powerful this organized system it worked realtors also they controlled the real estate columns of the newspapers so even if you were willing to sell to a minority in a a white area it would be put in what was called the restricted column of the new it said restriction area which meant you couldn't be sold to uh to a minority and that was decided by the local real estate board that's how powerful the system was in response, a small, tiny organization uh, calling themselves Police uh, on a Tiger, uh, the National Council on Discrimination Against Housing, put together by civil rights groups working out of a 
office the size of a bedroom, drafting fair housing laws that would basically non-discrimination laws. Um, that state that cities and states could pass. New York City passed one in '57. By 1961, these had spread. There were committees like this all over the country, and like 12 states had adopted. Important in terms of its long-term impact in the story was that by California in 19, which is where half the brokers in the country were. I want to talk to you about the Rumford Fair Housing Act really quickly. The as we learned in Shelley v. Kramer. The enforcement of restrictive covenants could not be done through the court, so it became up to the individuals that wanted to do it and these realtors, and they were really making a concerted effort to do that. To intensify the segregation, they had to do it amongst themselves, and so we have legislation coming in to try to stop that. Is that is that basically it? Rump- right. It was legislation to basically stop organized discrimination, um, and. And the way this was presented, the law basically said you can't discriminate in the sale of a house if you have a government insured loan on it. Um, and you know there would be a hearing by the State Equal Rights Commission, and at worst you could be fined five hundred dollars. And it was simply an attempt. This is the basis of sort of all fair housing laws today. It was simply to say you can't discriminate in who you're selling. If somebody offers you, you know, your asking price. You should accept that offer equally, you know, regardless of the race and the person. And that was what the law provided. And we talked briefly, and just just to make sure we get this, the terms forced housing, and you've indicated that forced busing came from use the term forced housing. That was an attempt to make someone like myself believe that something is being taken away or, or I'm going to be forced to do something when in effect, what you're saying is all it was was if you're selling a house and someone comes to you with money to buy that house, that you can't look to their race in order to decide whether or not you're going to to make that transaction. Right. Forced housing was language invented by the realtor boards to oppose, to recharacterize these fair housing laws and to imply this was the government coming into your home, forcing who was going to live there. That was the, that was the language they used to translate fair housing into forced housing as an attack on your, or your individual freedom which then became a key theme of this campaign for this state constitutional amendment, Proposition 14, on the ballot in California. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest is Gene Slater, author of Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. In the first half hour, we've talked about methods by which segregation happened out in the open and very, very open in the use of race. In the second half of the hour, we're going to talk about how the ideas and concepts of racism, particularly in segregation and housing, how they perpetuated, but how they did so in a a race-neutral language. This is Jaws of Justice on 98.1 KKFI. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Jaws of Justice Radio? Learn more at kkfi.org slash marketing. The kids want to put up a trampoline, but that old car is in the way. Why don't we give that car to Vehicles for Charity? It's great for both of us. We get rid of the car while getting a tax deduction, and KKFI gets the proceeds from the car whether it's running or not. Donate it to KKFI, Vehicles for Charity, 816-931-3122. Thank you for listening to KKFI. We are now adding new content to our social media sites every day. So be sure to 
to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901FM. And thanks for supporting KKFI since 1988. Here's the calendar for the week of March 27th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. For Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense virtual meetings this week, you can go to momsdemandaction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. You can check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. Tuesday, March 28th at 5.30 p.m., there's an Eliminate Fines and Fees Youth Summit Rally. Here's an opportunity to tell your story, become an advocate, or contact your local representative. Youth and community leaders are coming together to urge Missouri policymakers to end fines and fees in the juvenile legal youth system You are invited to join for a summit session on March 28th in support of Missouri House Bill 1142. You can find more info at misdkc.org. Wednesday, March 29th, 3 p.m., Noose to Needle, How Slavery, Lynching, and Racial Terror Birthed the Modern-Day Death Penalty. You can find information to register at Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, either their website or Facebook page. Thursday, March 36 p.m., The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. This is a discussion of his book by Sean Rochester, joined in the conversation by Gwen Grant, President and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Kansas City. It will be at the Plaza Branch of the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library in the Truman Forum Auditorium. This is an in-person event. You can RSVP at kclibrary.org. When you add up the economic costs of anti-Black bias in the United States over nearly 250 years, owed to slavery and the deprivations of Jim Crow and discrimination that persists today, the numbers are staggering. Author and personal finance consultant Sean Rochester puts the total at about $70 trillion. Thursday, March 30th at 5 p.m., Fierce Women, the Women Worthies Lecture, is at the Atkins Auditorium, Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, 4525 Oak Street, Kansas City, Missouri. This is with Dr. Eve Straussman-Fanser, curator and head of Italian and Spanish paintings at the National Gallery of Art. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Please. Take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program. David Bell speaking with Gene Slater about discrimination in housing availability. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 98.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Gene Slater. He's the author of Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspire to Segregate Housing and Divide America. 
in the first half of our show, we talked about the use of race to create a system in the open to segregate society. In this next half hour, we're going to talk about how that argument and that effort was reshaped to appear to be race neutral. And we start, Gene, with Proposition 14 in 1964, if you could tell us a little bit about that, particularly how it got passed in, a, in the state California, which I've always considered to be you know, the bastion of liberalism. Right. Let's talk more moderate liberal. And, but here, here's 1964. The realtors are putting on the ballot the state constitutional amendment to perpetuate residential discrimination, say no government cannot limit uh, discrimination by realtors, by owners, by brokers, by developers. And, but they're very politically isolated at this moment. It's the height of the civil rights movement. This is like the same period when Martin Luther King speaks at the March on Washington, uses the word freedom 20 times, the word equality once, invokes the idea that freedom is something inextricable, that if minorities aren't free, freedom doesn't exist, that freedom belongs to everyone. How do the realtors in this environment try to campaign in California for constitutional amendments so clearly you know, racially oriented but no, no state, not even Deep South, has such an amendment. No major politician will endorse them. Not Ronald Reagan, not Barry Goldwater for fear of seeming racist. Even the Chamber of Commerce, their longtime supporter, won't endorse them. All the Catholic archbishops, all the major church leaders, union leaders, business leaders are against them. They're really on their own in this. But how do they get support from an overwhelming majority of Californians most of whom support the federal civil rights law that's being passed at the same time uh, to fact Jim Crow in the South. How do they explain and defend this notion? And they really invent what's become the idea of colorblind freedom. They argue that they're the people in favor of freedom of choice. And freedom of choice means the right of an individual to sell his home to whoever he wants. And the enemy of that freedom of choice. It's not minorities. Realtors aren't against minorities. The head of their uh, campaign says, I am their greatest champion. I'm in favor of equal rights for all, the equal right of all owners to discriminate, meaning black owners as well as white owners to discriminate. So they define themselves as we, unlike civil rights, we're in favor of equal rights and equal and and we use the language of freedom of choice to this this question of who do you sell your property to? Who do you sell your home to when you're you know, selling it and trying to get cash and moving out of the neighborhood? Who do you sell your home to? That's a basic freedom of conscience. And they invoke the idea of this is like freedom of religion, um, that you have an absolute right in your conscience to choose who you want to sell to. They call it, and on the billboards across Los Angeles freezers, it says freedom of choice. And what this does, this language becomes so successful and so popular that the vast majority of Californians, 65% of Californians, 80% of uh, white union voters, normally the mainstay of the New Deal coalition, they vote, against, they vote for this proposition because it says to them, it doesn't mean that you're racially biased or prejudiced in any way to support it. You support the basic individual rights they used um, a, what they call a property owner's bill of rights with a picture of a realtor, like with a tricorner hat, like Paul Revere, you know, uh, you know, with a 
a patriot cap and you know ringing a bell. And so they present this notion that they are the defenders of individual freedom against overwhelming government. This campaign wins at the same day, on the same ballot, when liberalism is its height and Johnson defeats Goldwater, and that everybody assumes conservatism is dead. This constitutional amendment is supported. It then goes to the state Supreme Court, who rules it unconstitutional in 1966. They may say, well, the impact of this is sort of overwhelming in the U.S. group, but the impact continues both in racial segregation to today, and it impacts the future um, of American politics. And and I want to really hone in on this, Gene, because this was, I guess, one of the scarier parts of your book, really. It's when we saw this kind of open racism move in a way that 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 I could sell to people who who declare they're they're not racist, and and I'll read a, a little bit from uh, this is the L.A. Times endorsing Proposition 14 in 1964. It says, "quote One of man's most ancient rights in a free society is the privilege of using and disposing of his private property in whatever manner he deems appropriate." The editorial further stated, "But we do feel and strongly that housing equality cannot safely be achieved at the expense of still another basic right." which is the ability to discriminate against home buyers or renters by race, color, and creed, as that is a basic property right. And so what I'm hearing is, is that we're now no longer going to talk about race, or, or we're slowly going to jettison race as a kind. Now what we're going to talk about is freedom. And what you're telling me, Gene, is you're, you don't want me to have freedom to sell to whoever I want. You're encroaching upon my freedom, or I guess more so, government is now encroaching. So now the now it's my freedom, and it, it's against a a, 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 a overreaching government, and we've removed race from it, and I can still, what, hold on to the idea that I'm not racist, but still champion something that certainly has very much a racist impact. Right. It means that you're in favor of basically freedom of conscience, almost portrayed as freedom of religion, a freedom of choice, that you believe in every American has individual freedom of choice. And what this is really about, maybe the clearest way to see What's going on uh, in, in this portrayal was John Gorsuch, the grandfather of the current uh, Supreme Court justice, argued a case along these lines, uh, actually in Colorado, in which he explained to the Colorado Supreme he said, look, I realize that the seller's freedom of choice to sell to who they sell to really doesn't matter to him. But what it matters, because he's leaving, he's getting cash. What really matters is it affects his ability to live in an, to live in an all-white community. It says the liberty of man to choose freely to whom he will rent or sell has made it possible for him to choose the type of neighborhood wishes wishes to live and the associations he and his children will have. So, in effect, it's saying you should have the right to control who lives in a neighborhood. The neighborhoods can belong to a single race, but it doesn't use the old language to do that. It uses the language of individual freedom. And this proves extremely powerful. And one of the reasons it's so successful is it takes a single narrow right that nobody had ever talked about before, the right beside whom you can sell to when you want gas for your home and to racially discriminate. And they said that was the basic right the American Revolution had been fought for. Um, that was the underlying 
uh, principle of American freedom and the Bill of Rights had never been stated because it had never been limited. And that was, they were re recategorizing the nature of American freedom as being not belonging to all, including people's ability to choose where to live, but rather freedom was divisible. It was your private property with like a white picket fence around it. In fact, they said the, the symbol of their campaign was the house key. This is the key to your freedom, the freedom to limit who else could live there. And, and you mentioned in, in the book, and you mentioned it here, and I just you know want to highlight it, this, this freedom you were talking about, the freedom they were using, the argument was it was so foundational to American society. It was so ingrained in American society to be able to do what they wanted to do that it didn't even it didn't even need mention in the Bill of Rights. Is that am I hearing that correctly? Right. As I said, we need a new in effect, we need a new property owner's bill of rights to assure this, never mentioning what about the rights to choose where to live? What about the rights to become a homeowner in the first place that have been so denied, you know, to other races for decades? And in fact, this notion of the freedom to choose who to sell to, realtors from 1905, the entire purpose of racial covenants and controls by the real estate associations were to limit who owners could sell to. They had fought this for 50 years to limit owners' freedom. Then after Shelley versus Kramer and then fair housing laws, they said, oh my God, government is now saying you can't, you know, you have to be willing to sell, you know, if somebody's willing to match your offer and you can't use your own freedom of conscience. So now they were against that. Now they were saying, now they were saying we have to defend an absolute freedom of choice. So they take a single narrow right one never talked about before. And they made that the litmus case of American freedom. And they basically said, if we lose this right, we lose American freedom for all individuals on every topic. Well, and, and what I found fascinating again about your book is that this idea of freedom, uh, is it a, a zero-sum game? Or is there something else? And I want to read briefly. This is from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And one more uh, uh, quickly from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, where he speaks about um, his white brothers as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. And so when I, when I, when I, when I was finished with your book and I went through and read parts again, it's really a, a, a fight between two versions of freedom. And if you could help me and, and help our listeners understand that, because that to me was really the point of your book, certainly using uh, segregation, the realtors attempt to segregate and actually do segregating, as the as the basis to help us understand those concepts. Yeah. So I think there these are two fundamental notions. This realtor version was created precisely in response to Martin Luther King's and to the idea of the President's Committee on Civil Rights that freedom belongs to everybody, belongs to the country as a whole, and if you deny freedom to some people. Instead, the realtors said, no, that extending rights to others will take away rights from you. The freedom was a zero sum, and it was simply if you if you allowed others to participate in freedom, you would have less of it. That was this notion that freedom belongs to you separately and individually, and government 
in government securing these rights meant government would balance rights. It's like think about freedom of speech. Um, freedom of speech has always meant the government is balancing some rights against others in order to assure overall as much freedom as possible. Here they were saying, no, no, no. There's an absolute, this is an absolute right. Instrumented who you sell, the same idea could be used on any and has been used on any topic um, to note the notion of an absolute freedom. And if you lose this freedom, you've lost all your freedom. The differences, the way I characterize them are, one is inclusive freedom, freedom for all. That freedom is inextricable. That if you limit anybody's freedom, you're limiting all. And government's role is to balance rights to make, to preserve overall freedom. The other view is exclusive freedom. Freedom really belongs to some people more than others. And it's defined, you define freedom in such a way that that's the impact. You don't ever say that. Um, you know, the realtors, they had this forced housing action kit that they distributed to real estate boards across the country to fight these battles. And they said, never speak about race, only speak about freedom. This was this notion of freedom as an individual right to discriminate. And this has been important. The consequences of this campaign important in two ways. One, this campaign, Ronald Reagan then picked up on this theme after the Supreme Court, you know, uh, overturned Proposition 14. He picked up the realtor's language and he said, if a Negro, if a man wants to discriminate against a Negro in selling or renting his house, it is his right to do so. He started, he found his language and this led, this was his key campaign in running for office. So it had an impact on politics. It also had an impact on housing today. So in 1968, when the Congress finally passed a fair housing law, a few days after Martin Luther King was assassinated in response to riots across the country, it was permanently weakened because Congress had seen the overwhelming vote on Proposition 14. If you could pass that, you know, with 75% of the white vote in California, you could pass such a bill anywhere in the country. So the law was permanently weakened. So there were like 4 million complaints of fair housing a year that go unenforced because there was no permanent enforcement mechanism created. So it shapes America today in both how we talk about the language of freedom and how we talk and in the and neighborhoods remaining highly segregated. Gene, as we get down to the last few minutes, you know, we, we talked with Mr. Gustafson and we looked at Johnson County, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri, and I grew up in Johnson County and I've lived in Kansas City, Missouri, and both. It's certainly the redlining that we, that we talked about very much exists, not in by law today, but certainly by impact today, meaning I, the maps, I think, look very similar today that they did uh, back at the time. But in order to help undo that, you can't use race anymore, right? Because we're all race neutral. And so... And so, while there, and so while it may impact a certain segment of population, black population, you can't look at or come up with solutions that say that use race in them. And so I know you have one thing that you've worked on uh, recently as an attempt, at least, to help overcome or at least undo uh, some of the damage that's been done in the past. Sure. So we've worked in California over the past year on for the treasurer's office and with the legislature to create a state revolving fund for shared appreciation second mortgages to help people buy homes, um, given how high the cost of homes is. Things like this are 
we're working on around the country, California has the biggest problem of affordability. And one of the questions the legislators asked is, they said, we'd like to use this to help overcome, you know, past barriers to racial equity and to wealth building because during all the decades that I've described, blacks were prevented from basically by buying homes, by FHA, by the realtors and so forth, and a chance to build wealth. How do we overcome that today? Can, but they can't, in California as many states, you can't have a program that's racially oriented. A state uh, amendment that prohibits that. So I said, why don't we do the following? Why don't we say everybody below 150% of median income can apply for one of these loans? I mean, even if we make a billion dollars of these loans a year, it's still going to be a limited amount. There will be great demand for this. Think of everybody can apply, can get, in effect, you know, submit one application, get one lottery ticket, if you want to think of it as a lottery. But people, runs of race, who've lived for at least five of the last 10 years in the historically most discriminated areas, historically redlined areas of the state, get four tickets. They get four chances at this lottery. So we're simply reshaping the odds, because all this is about is how the odds were stacked in the past. It's reshaping the odds. It's not reshaping them racially, but it's reshaping for those people who lived in the in the historically discriminated against areas. Five of the last 10 years, because they may have been, you know, uh, gentrified out. And that's sort of one way to use that as one of the systems to think about how can you undo some of what's happened in the past in a racially neutral way that takes into account the effects of that past. But, you know, it seems to, I, I feel like we're, well, we're trying to use the, the tools, if you will, I hear of, of maybe what was used in the past, the other direction, meaning we can't say race anymore. So we, we, we look to areas that have been most impacted by uh, racial segregation. And those are the areas that will happen to benefit from the program. And as it just so happens, those are also the areas that, that may have the highest population of, of black homeowners. Let me restate that a little. This isn't restricting where somebody can use this program to buy a home. This California Dream for All program is designed to provide opportunities for people throughout California and to increase the chances for those people who've lived in historically discriminated areas to choose where to live, where, where to buy, use this to buy homes, whether in those neighborhoods to be gentrifying or to move somewhere else. It's to expand choice. It's to overcome the limits on choice that the that the legacy of this whole history of segregation is imposed. And this history of segregation has shaped the country not just for those excluded, but has shaped the country, and this may be the central point of the book, has shaped the country for everybody. Where we live today, the neighborhoods we live, was created in response to these redlining maps for 60 years, to where government insurance was, to the building out of suburbs, of all white suburbs. The, the legacy of this has shaped where everybody lives and who their neighbors are. And it continues today in part because of that legacy. And to overcome that legacy would require strong government action. But the idea of freedom that the realtors promoted in these campaigns in the 1960s has been what's limited 
government's ability to actually effectively overturn that legacy. That's really the central issue, I think. And you know, as we close, I and I appreciate that. I, I wanted to to bring up one other one other thing that you had mentioned anecdotally in a, in a prior conversation, and particularly to our listeners to get them to start thinking about where some of these past policies and practices continue to exist today or continue to to reemerge today under a different guise. You have a family member, I believe, that lives in San Francisco and was approached by uh, uh, someone with a petition of some sort. So one of the questions I've been asked when I was doing, I've been doing some presentations both virtually and in person, you know, for Johnson County, for Columbus, for Greensboro, is, well, what can we do about this today? Um, and one of the small examples I gave was um, my son lives in uh, near Stanford in California, and there's efforts to modify single-family zoning to allow some modest number of multifamily units. And in fact, single-family zoning, the first single-family zoning in the country was created by Don McDuffie in Berkeley in order to support racial covenants in the areas that he didn't have on himself. That's sort of where single-family zoning came from. And he was approached by petition gatherers who said, well, we need to maintain this, you know, our community right to control, you know, who else can live here. And so we signed this petition. He's a school teacher. This is for te- housing that's mainly designed for school teachers. Those issues are coming up in communities around the country on should we modify single-family zoning? This is a small way. In other places in the country, uh, all over, and, and resonated, I think, in the Kansas City area, um, there, you know, can landlords or cities discriminate? against people who have Section 8 vouchers, housing vouchers, as a place where to live. In one uh, city in Texas, city council passed orders. landlords were renting to people without discriminating and saying, no, you can't rent, you can't rent to those people. So these same battles go on under different names today. Uh, that's part of the legacy that we're, that, we're, that we're left with together as a country. Gene, uh, your book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America, is really a wonderful book. Thank you for taking the time to put it together. I really appreciate that. It was very insightful to me, particularly on how these issues evolve and they still exist today. And and then I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to, to be here on our radio show. Thank you very much. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. This house, O oh Lord, we pray, make it safe by night and day. Bless these walls so firm, so stout, keeping want and trouble out. Bless the roof and chimneys tall let thy peace dwell over all bless this door that it may prove ever open open to joy 
and love. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. One would think living through the racial turbulence of the 1960s, I might not be surprised and saddened by today's omnipresent, blatant racism. But apparently my hope-driven belief was terribly naive. I actually thought we had learned from the wasteful racist violence splashed so vividly on American TV news of the lunch counter attacks on black Americans, the fire hoses, the police dogs, compared with the brave and peaceful protests of the widespread civil rights movement, that it might have shaken us out of the ugly depths of racism. I really did think so. And when a black American became president, well, that really, I thought, put the nail in the coffin of racism. Boy, was I wrong. Now it's all too obvious that racism never went away. It had just been there below the surface until 2016 when Trump made it okay to be openly racist. What happened to the white people in the 1960s whose neighborhoods experienced rapid racial change? What was the long-term effect? Did getting to know people of color as neighbors have the desired effect of lessening racial fear of the other On the ground, access to history as it happens is vital to any real understanding and learning from history. And that's where we're going today. According to CBS journalist Bill Curtis, writing about her new book, Redline, uh, by our guest Linda Gartz, he said the book peels back the onion of America's original sin to a new level. Told through the lives of her Chicago family, Gartz probes the invisible web of oppression that affected both whites and blacks. Redlining destroyed the American dream without its victims even knowing it. But, he says through this book, now we know. Linda Gartz, thanks for being here with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Thank you so much for having me, Bert. Well, the book is called Redlined, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960s Chicago. Its author, our guest Linda Gartz, is a six-time Emmy-honored documentary producer, author, blogger, and educator. The book offers a personal context to a number of the defining events of the 20th century, not the least of which was her own community's tumultuous experience with race. Well, here we are well into the 21st century, and it seems clear that a great many white Americans don't understand what racism is. I get the impression that many believe that, well, if no crosses are burned in the front yards of black people, eh, there's no racism. 
and that when others point out racism, they insist we are merely playing the race card, which they then dismiss as false. Your book sheds light on what Curtis called the invisible web of oppression, which most white people don't even believe is real. Frankly, most white people, most listeners, are not familiar with the term redlining. What is redlining? How does it work? Anybody under 50 doesn't know what it means and has probably never heard of it. And even people who are our age um, may think they know what it means, but they really don't. Um, Redlining is a term that refers to the color-coded maps that were created starting in about 1933 under the Roosevelt administration. Um, The Roosevelt administration was hoping to jumpstart the housing market by making loans more available to potential home buyers. And what they did um, is go to cities throughout the country and ask real estate agents and banks to color code the neighborhood based upon the quality of the housing and how safe the loans would be. So they created a color-coded map for each of these communities. Green meant an area was really good and safe for a loan. Blue meant that it was a very good area for a loan. Yellow was called definitely declining. And red was called hazardous, meaning no loans at all should be given in that neighborhood. And there could be several reasons that a neighborhood was, quote, redlined or colored red. It could be because of really terrible housing stock or a lot of rooming houses. Um, But one thing for sure is that if one African-American moved into a neighborhood, then that neighborhood was colored red. It was redlined. And that meant that there were no loans available for either blacks or whites, Um, housing loans for mortgages or home equity loans to keep up one's property. So that's where the term redlining originated, and it was in place as a federal government policy from 1933 until 1968 when the Fair Housing Act was passed. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website kkfi.org If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org 
forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale I'm gonna hold on the best I can And if I